pray. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts now be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was thinking back a couple of weeks ago about the very first sermon I ever preached as a pastor. It was back at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Belvedere, Illinois. And I decided to start my ministry off there with two different messages. The very first week is what you can expect of your pastor. And the next week was what the pastor can expect of you. Now, Nancy may be the only one who may remember that very first sermon, because when I talked about what you can expect of your pastor, I compared pastors to penguins. Now, that's partly because a lot of times pastors dress in black and white. They're kind of awkward. They're kind of silly. They have an interesting homing device. Uh, There's all kinds of comparisons that I use. I remember that sermon. I look back to see what the very first sermon was all about that I ever preached here as your pastor. I was going to give you a test today and say that if you don't know, we're going to take another offering. (laughs) I did this on March the 9th in 2008, which means March the 9th, roughly, it will be five years that we've been here. The very first sermon I ever preached here was... What do you do about unanswered prayer? Now you all remember, don't you? Probably not. It's online. You can go listen to it. Join the other 88 people I noticed who've listened to it online as well. Well, today we're not going to talk about my sermons. We're going to take a look at the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached. It was in Luke 4. Matt read that to you a little while ago. The sermon he preached was at the synagogue in his own hometown in Nazareth. Now, every time I see that scripture, I always think how the Bible says a prophet is not welcome back in his hometown, but yet I preached at St. John's and Seward on a couple of occasions, and they didn't take me outside and stone me or anything. But we know that Jesus was ministering. If we read the text, we read around Luke chapter 4. He'd been all through Judea. He'd been working down near Jerusalem for about eight months. But now he was about to begin his ministry, so he goes back home to Galilee. And Luke says that when he got there, verse 14, that news about him spread throughout the entire countryside. By this time, Jesus was pretty well known. And so on Sabbath day, and as you read the story of Jesus, you're going to almost always see that on Sabbath day, as usual, in other words, Jesus was a regular church attender. He went to the synagogue, and since he was a rabbi, since he was a teacher, custom dictated that he had to be allowed to preach. Now, synagogue services, believe it or not, were not a whole lot different than what church services are like today. They recited certain creeds, they prayed together, they sang from the Psalms, Uh, there was a public reading of scripture. Uh, generally two readings, one from the law, one from the prophets, and then whoever was speaking was expected to take one of those scriptures and give an exposition of that Bible passage. Now, specific passages were dictated to be read on specific days. In fact, in the Lutheran church and in many Protestant churches, 
we have what is known as a common lectionary, where there are readings that are assigned for every Sunday. And, believe it or not, I'm actually using one of those today. I'm using the Gospel reading from the third Sunday after the Epiphany. And next Sunday, oh, I'm going to do it twice in a row. I'm going to continue with the Gospel reading before we launch into a brand new set of Lenten messages. Wow, Lent's here already. I thought we just got done with Christmas. Wow. Well, at any rate, as it so happened that the day Jesus shows up in Nazareth, the Old Testament reading, the prophet reading, is from Isaiah chapter 61. And it comes on a scroll, and you can take a look on the next screen. It's on the front of your cover, but this is a picture of what Isaiah 61 looks like in Hebrew. I'm not going to read it to you in Hebrew. But this passage talks about the prophet. Well, the prophet is the same thing as the Messiah who's going to come. And so what Jesus did was he started reading, and he starts reading this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, after he had read those words, it says that he rolled the scroll up and he sat down to teach. Now, I always get a kick out of when people say, Why don't we do church the way we used to do it? My question is, how far back do you want to go? Well, most people only want to go back to the 1950s. You know, the old TLH. They go back to that time. Well, why don't we go back to the days of Jesus and do church the way they did then? You know what would happen? Today, I would sit in a chair up here and do my sermon while all of you stood. You want to go back that far? Ted is voting no, I can tell. (laughs) But it says that he sat down, as was the custom, and then he began his very first recorded sermon, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, you know, the prophet Isaiah that I just read to you, the guy that wrote about 400 years ago, I'm the guy he was talking about. God promised to send someone. He promised to send the prophet, the Messiah, to preach to the poor, to proclaim liberty, to give sight to the blind, to free the downtrodden. Ta-da! Here I am. That's what Jesus was saying. Now, there's an interesting reaction to his sermon. We're going to look at that next week. But today, I want us to focus on the words that Jesus spoke at the very beginning of his very first message because it tells us what Jesus came to do for us. Now, this morning it was very foggy outside. A lot of people, I'm sure, kind of feel like they live in a fog. They really don't know sometimes what's out there. And so what Jesus does is come to, like, shine his radiance through that fog to people who sometimes say, gee, I wonder what Jesus would like to do for me, or I wonder what Jesus could do for me. But Jesus says, I'll tell you what, it's right here in the text. There are five ministry priorities, and because they apply to everyone, that means us, and by extension, these five ministry priorities we're going to talk about today, not only was what Jesus said that he was going to do, but I believe that 
if we are truly Christ followers, like we profess to be, that we ought to be following these five ministry priorities as well. And I'm not talking about just as a church. I'm talking about us as families or individuals. Well, let's take a look at these. Here's his first ministry priority. He says, uh, I want to meet your deepest needs. He begins by saying, I've been anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, he's certainly talking about material poverty. There's no doubt about it, but that's not all. In fact, he was referring to spiritual poverty as well. If you pay attention to the song the choir sang this morning, which I think was based somewhere around on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, you remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, which says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I want to take you back to the very first century when Jesus lived. In the first century, poverty was widespread. Poverty was pretty brutal. Uh, you know, I think sometimes, even as bad as we think our country is, uh, we kind of forget that we are one of very few places in this world where the average, ver- uh, average person kind of has a certain degree over his or her ability uh, to govern their financial situation. And even though today prosperity seems sometimes hard to come by, uh, generally speaking, if you work hard and apply yourself, your chances of having uh, a comfortable middle-class existence are pretty good. But not so in the days of Jesus. People then would work six days a week, and you might say, why not seven? Well, it's because the Sabbath, they all took off. They were good Jews. Uh, They would work back-breaking labor from dawn to dusk and would have very little to show for it and those people who could not find work or those people who were physically unable to work did not trot their little selves down to the social security office because no such thing existed. There was no system in place to take care of those kinds of people including the widows and the orphans. Their only option was to sit by the side of the road and beg or probably turn to prostitution or some other form of crime. And the governmental system of taxation, which surprisingly is pretty similar to ours today, is kind of designed to keep the working classes poor and the helpless destitute. Sounds kind of familiar. I'm not going to talk politics today. But at any rate, the poor were society's outcasts, and the religious people, the scribes, the Pharisees, actually looked down on poor people. And they looked down on poor people with the attitude of they must be poor because um, they deserve it. If they didn't deserve it, they wouldn't be poor. And Jesus comes back to his hometown church. He preaches an Old Testament text. He goes to an Old Testament message, one that was almost always overlooked by the teachers, and said the so-called unimportant people, the poor, the weak, the widow, the orphans, matter to God. I can always remember going to a conference a number of years ago where Bill Hybel spoke, and he said, if lost people, if poor people, if the people at the bottom of society, if all the people in this world matter to God, they better matter to you. Ooh, that kind of hit me right between the eyes. I don't know that I was necessarily discriminating against a group of people, but, you know, if, if people matter to God, they ought to matter to God's people. That's why Jesus said, I came to proclaim good news to the poor, not just the materially poor, 
but to the spiritually poor. People whose lives are kind of empty or destitute. And guess what? All of us fit into that category somehow. We are all a little bit empty or a little bit destitute, a little bit poor in some way. Now, this is the fifth church that I've served as a pastor, and we've lived in a variety of different communities. And in each community that we've ever lived in, there were people who are quite affluent. They're doing well. They live in nice big homes. And we've also lived in communities where you've got the other end of the spectrum where people are really, really poor. I guess all I've learned about that is that there is lack everywhere. Even among the most affluent, there is still a tremendous lack. I mean, I believe there's not a single person I know who doesn't struggle with some poverty of some kind. I mean, just think about your own life just for a moment. Where is your spiritual poverty? Where's your lack? I mean, where are you poor? Now, it might be finances for all I know. It might be in relationships. Uh, the ones that are supposed to bring you happiness are not bringing you happiness, so you've got a little bit of a lack there. Uh, maybe you're living in some form of emotional poverty. Uh, no sense of joy, no sense of fulfillment, no sense of direction, no sense of purpose. It's just emotional. Now, I want you to know something, that whatever you lack, wherever you lack, Jesus says, I'm there to fill it. I'm there to take care of it. And no matter what your need is or needs, there are always two things you can count on. One of them is that Jesus will help you endure whatever season of poverty you're going through. And two, Jesus will help you overcome whatever it is you need to, put po- to get poverty out of your life. That's one thing he's come to do for us. Now, here's the second thing. He wants to set you free from whatever's got a hold of you. Jesus said, God sent me to proclaim release to the captives. I preached this text one time down at Angola Prison. And when I said, God has come to tell me uh, that he's here to release the captives, they all stood and cheered. <laughs> well, you can well imagine, you know, if you are in Angola where the average sentence is 88 years, somebody says, what, <laughs> we're free? Can you imagine how happy those guys would be? But see, just like everybody struggles with poverty in some area, it's also true that everyone else is or has been captive to something. For some people, they're just captive to food. They're a slave to sex. They're, they're a captive to alcohol or gambling or whatever. And those things are kind of easy to spot because they catch up with you the fastest. But there are other things that are kind of insidious that not quite so obvious that hold people captive. I mean, some of you may very well be imprisoned by anger. You just can't control it. It controls you. For others, it's guilt or fear or uh, resentment or depression or jealousy or ambition or revenge. You just can't wait to get even with some people. I mean, this kind of stuff just grabs onto you and kind of shackles you. I mean, just think about it. You know, as much as you try to manage your anger or your lust, it just doesn't seem to work. But doesn't Paul talk about that? The good stuff that I want to do, I don't do. And all that bad stuff I don't want to do, that's what I found myself doing, oh, wretched man that I am, he says. I mean, every person here has been captive or might actually be captive 
to something. But there's some really good news in the Bible, because it says when Jesus sets you what? Free, what happens? You'll be free indeed. So Jesus comes to proclaim freedom to the captives. I mean, just imagine what this would be like. Imagine your guilt is gone. Your past no longer haunts you. Your sins, your mistakes no longer torment you. Your shame no longer engulfs you. You would say, I have been set free. Or imagine if your anger no longer controlled you. Uh, you're, you're in a situation that's not going your way, and rather than break loose with a torrent of profanity or whatever, you actually just kind of step back and take a deep breath, and you respond peacefully with wisdom and strength and leadership. You've been set free. Or imagine if you were no longer captive to inappropriate sexual thoughts, pornography, whatever. You know, when you see a certain image, uh, no longer are you saying, oh, man, I'd like to see more of that, or I'd like to see that, or whatever. Now you just kind of go, not interested. Don't want to take a second look. And you're actually able to move on and do something else. I have a feeling you'd say, Man, it feels so good to be free. That's what I think about the guys I know in prison. I mean, if I were to say to these guys, I mean, if I were to say to a few of my friends, if I would say to Hayward, for example, Hey, Hayward, I'm here to tell you, buddy, you're free. Front gate of the prison is wide open. I think Hayward would say, feet don't fail me now. (laughs) He'd give me a big old bear hug and he'd be out that front gate because he knew he was really free. Jesus said, I came to proclaim freedom to the captives. Here's the third thing. He wants to give you a new outlook on life. And here he said, the recovery of sight to the blind. In the same way with poverty, he's talking about it literally and figuratively. We know that during Jesus' ministry, he certainly restored the sight of any number of blind people. But you know, there's another kind of blindness in the Bible. It's spiritual blindness. I mean, Jesus actually referred to a bunch of pastors in his day, Pharisees, as what? Blind guides. And interesting. It applies to all of us when our fear or our prejudices or our lack of faith or our sin prevents us from seeing God's truth in a certain situation. Let me give you an example. Uh, A number of years ago, at the second church I was pastoring, I was sitting down with a close friend one day, sharing a cup of coffee, and I was complaining. I was complaining about a, uh, a ministry-related problem. And I, I can remember telling him how big this problem was, how insurmountable this problem was, how ineffective I've been at solving that problem, how remote any hope of ever solving that problem was. And I remember Mike sitting there, and finally he'd had enough. And he said, Barry, you haven't said one true thing in this entire conversation. And that kind of took me back. I mean, he, didn't, he basically called me a liar. See, you haven't said one true thing. He said, you're looking at this all wrong. You're exaggerating the problem. You're underestimating God's ability to actually work through you. You need to be able to see this from God's perspective. 
And then I think he added something like, suck it up and be a man. That's great theology. You can find it in First Zimmer chapter 2. <laughs> but, you know, he was right. He was right. You know, uh, you know, so I asked God to help me through the situation. I, helped, I prayed that he would give me his perspective on it. Uh, to help me see through eyes of faith, and before I knew it, suddenly realized the problem wasn't nearly as big as I had made it out to be. This giant mountain of a problem was just really kind of a little molehill, you know, what kind of just kind of kick over and move on. And I just developed a brand new outlook. Why? Because God gave me his eyes. See, Jesus came to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind. That means you don't need to walk around in this world like you're just kind of groping in the dark. I was thinking about this. I don't know if you ever, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and decide you need to, I don't know, go to the restroom, go get a drink. Have you ever been in a, in a strange place and you wake up and you suddenly can't quite remember where the bathroom is or where the kitchen is and it's dark and you don't want to turn on the lights to wake anybody else? And, well, can you imagine how much better it is if you can actually turn on the lights? You see, that's what Jesus, the light of the world, wants to do for us. He wants to give us spiritual insight. He wants to give us His vision. He wants to give us this spiritual perspective. He wants to give us, I don't know if you want to call this Jesus' eyes, where we see it from His perspective. Here's the fourth thing. He said, He wants you to feel good. Now, when I wrote that, I thought, no, there's going to be some people say, that doesn't sound very good. I mean, some of you might actually be surprised that I would say that Jesus wants you to feel good. You say, oh, Jesus never promised the rose garden. Jesus didn't say, you know, if you turn to me that just suddenly everything's going to be fine. Well, on the surface, I will admit, it sounds pretty shallow. And I'm not here to preach any feel-good kind of theology, uh, but, but I am here to ask you to think about it. And what I want you to think about is that God doesn't want you to go through life always feeling bad. I mean, actually, the Bible says he wants you to feel good about life. And in fact, Jesus said, I came to set free those who are downtrodden. Now, some of you that memorize the King James Version of the Bible may remember it says, to set at liberty those that are bruised. To set at liberty those that are bruised. Anybody here ever had a bruise? Life ever gotten the best of you? You got emotional bruises? Maybe you got some social bruises. Maybe you got, honest to goodness, physical bruises. You got hurts that just seem to linger. Well, Jesus said, I've come to lift you out of that. In fact, the book of Isaiah says this about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. Now, guess who the bruised reed is? I'm looking at her. I'm looking at her. I'm looking at him. We are the bruised reeds. And he says what? He said, he's there. He's not going to break them. He says, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. We got any dim wicks here this morning? <laughs> now, I didn't say dim wits. So don't, I wasn't talking about you, Tommy. Uh, dim wicks. You know, what is a dim wick? Well, you know, you could probably on a certain Sunday, you probably could look up front and you see one that just seems like it's just about to go out, but it's got just enough to hang on. You know, in 26 years of being a pastor, you'd be surprised how many people told me, when you came up, I was about ready to leave this church, but I decided to give it 
one more Sunday, one more week, one more month. They were really saying, I was a dim wick. I just about lost it. And Jesus comes back and he says, I'm not going to snuff out dim wicks. I'm in the business of doing what? Pumping life back into them. Now, I just want you to understand, friends, I don't know all of your lives. I know some of you better than others. But if you're bruised or beaten or downtrodden, Jesus wants to release you from whatever that oppression is. He wants to build you up emotionally. He wants you to feel good. But let's remember something. We do not live by feelings. We live by faith. Jesus says, you know, take my yoke. And we don't know much what a yoke is anymore, but that heavy wooden thing. Jesus said, you take my yoke. It's light. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. And what you need to understand, what Jesus is trying to say to us, what he said to the people a long time ago, he says to us today is, if you're bruised, if you're beaten, if you're downtrodden, he wants to help you. Now, countless number of times I can find in my Bible, I don't know what your Bible says, but my Bible says Jesus wants us to be full of joy. Doesn't he? Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. I'm here so that your joy might be complete. I want you to experience abundance. I'm here to give you peace like the world doesn't understand. I I want you to have hope. Now, you don't have to feel oppressed. You just need to understand you're blessed. I wrote that rhyme myself, by the way. came out pretty good. You don't have to feel oppressed. You just need to feel blessed. You don't need to walk through life You know, with that, I've been baptized in vinegar Lutheran look. Uh, You don't need to go through life feeling bad or blue or beaten or bruised. You can feel good. Jesus, I want you to feel full of joy. I want you to enjoy life. I want you to have life and to have life abundantly. Here's the last thing. He said, he wants you to experience God's favor. That's kind of an interesting word. Last time I was down at, at Angola Prison, I was sitting around one evening, I was talking to some of the inmates who take care of me at the ranch house, and and one of the inmates, Big Lou, said to me, he says, Doc, you know something? You really have favor in this prison. And I said, really? What's that mean? He says, there's only about one or two of you that I know who can go anywhere in this prison without anybody following you around. You really have favor. I had to think about that. Nobody, nobody really uses language like that much anymore. You have favor. Now, we use words like, Maddie's my favorite. Well, do you see that smile? <laughs> she actually think I was telling her the truth. <laughs> you know you're my favorite. <laughs> but to have favor with somebody, that's kind of interesting. I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, that means that evidently the person who's in charge trusts me. That's Warden Kane. I mean, Warden Kane says, you know, Doc, you don't need anybody to go with you. You know where you're going. Nobody's going to bother you. In fact, I'm going to give you the silver bullet. The silver bullet is if you ever have any trouble in prison, tell them you're my friend. I've only had to fire that bullet one time, and it works. Guess what? It was not a real bullet. I mean, don't get excited. (laughs) 
But, you know, think about this. You know, we have God's favor, and God says, I, I trust you. I, I really do. I love you. I came to die for you. And if you're ever in trouble, I give you a silver bullet. It's called Jesus. That's where you turn. You, you got God's favor. I mean, that's such a cool thing. In the, in the New Living Translation, it said, the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now, I know that there are some people who think God is rather mad and angry and vindictive. I met somebody not long ago who, who basically thinks God is just some kind of harsh, demanding sort of dude who just, you know, some evil guy sitting up in heaven ready to smoke you with a lightning bolt. Uh, there are some people, maybe some of you that are even here today, you know, God is not a God of unconditional love to you. I mean, for you, God may just be some a guy who's just looking to smack you. Uh, but I got news for you. I don't know what's in your Bible. I can't find that in my Bible. I mean, God is, God is not a God of disapproval. You know, I always sometimes think we take Bible passages. I'm glad we've memorized Bible passages, but I wish we'd memorize more about what's in front of it and what's behind it sometimes. And that's why, I mean, I love John 3.16. Nothing wrong with John 3.16. Uh, probably at the Super Bowl next week in New Orleans, there's going to be some clown sitting in front of everybody holding up a sign that says John 3.16, as if, all of the unbelievers are going to go, oh, John 3 dots 1 6. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Uh, most of them are saying, put the sign down. Um, but you all know John 3 16. For God so loved the world. A great verse. But you know the next verse? Silence. John 3 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That's not an evil, wicked, bad, and nasty God, friends. He came to proclaim God's favor. You can experience wherever you want, whenever you want, however you want. God wants to put his hand of blessing on your life. I mean, that's the good news. Simple as saying, you know, God, I, I receive your favor. God, I receive your blessings. I receive your mercy. I don't deserve it, but I accept it. Go to the next screen, because this is really a summary of everything I've said today. Jesus' first recorded sermon tells us what he came to do for all people, and that includes you, every last one of you, from my very favorite Maggie, all the way back to the back, to Wayne, also one of my favorites. Ah, you're all my favorites. What am I saying? Okay. I don't want anybody walking out of the day says, well, he only likes about two people. <laughs> We're glad he's leaving. Um, but when I look at this, he came to me. I, you can put your own name in there. Yeah, my good friend Jim. Um, Jim and I have known each other since kindergarten. He came to meet Jim's deepest needs. Came to meet, he came to set Jim free from whatever it is that had a grip on him. He came to help Jim see life from the angle of truth, to heal Jim's hurts, to restore him emotionally, and so that Jim could experience God's favor so that Jim could enjoy his presence in his life. Now, you could, it should be you do that. Ted, your name's in there too. Every, everybody's name is in there. But you know, the cool thing about that is this is what we get to do. Do you know anybody that could use any of this? Do you know anybody who has some deep spiritual needs? 
I don't know, maybe they're sitting next to you. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sitting next to you. See, now if I'd have sat down, that would have made it worse. Because you know you're my favorite, don't you? My favorite, Maggie Edzards. You know anybody that something's got a grip on them? I bet you do. Do you know people that don't see life from the angle of honest-to-goodness truth? Remember I talked about this a couple weeks ago, that have this terrible worldview. All they believe is what the world wants to tell them. I've got the vaguest idea what the Bible says. They're out there living life like the world shows them how to live on television or in a movie. But they're not living life the way God's Word. There are people like that. People with hurts. Bruises, still a little bumped in life, people that need a, a hug. You know, it's surprising to me how often on Facebook I see people post something about, I need a hug, click like, and I'll send it back and hug you too. There must be a lot of people out there that just need somebody to hug them, sit next to them and say, I can be your friend. Like Maddie. Like be your friend. That's kind of nice to know the pastor's your friend, isn't it? Yeah, I thought so. And you know, when you got somebody who's willing to walk along with you through life, be there for you, promise to help you, you know, maybe it's just a little confirmation kid, or your wife, your friends, or somebody you married. I didn't marry them, I married them to each other. Somebody whose baby I will baptize. Or somebody whose babies I have baptized. That's kind of a nice thing. And in the process, what do you get to do? You get to share sometimes the law. There's no doubt about it. Sometimes you've got to smack people a little bit and remind them that what they're doing is not through God's eyes. But you also get a great and wonderful opportunity to say, let me tell you how life can be better. I don't know anybody that wouldn't like life to be better to some extent. It's a great thing. May God give that to you, and may you learn how to give that to others. In his name, amen. Well, let's join.